0: Many of us today are experiencing a feeling of exile. More frequently, we hear or say, I miss the way things were, a phrase commonly spoken about changes that are, at first, experienced as unwelcome, like a relationship ending, losing a job, or losing a place of privilege. But sometimes, it is in the midst of seasons of displacement that the greatest growth occurs, and the greatest blessings are found. The exile of the Bible was a time of massive displacement when Israel was forced to leave behind many of its norms. And yet, it was during this season of loss that the Jewish faith underwent its most powerful and transformative spiritual growth. This Lent, by exploring the spiritual awakening of exile, we pastors hope to focus on areas needing attention in the church and country today. Join us as we go deeper into the search of faith to discover what can be found precisely when we think so much has been lost. Let us pray. Holy God, if there is any word that is said from this pulpit that is not according to your will, let it come to naught and do no harm. But if there is anything said that is according to your will, Let it be heard as if spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, that it might pierce through our resistance to hearing it and be the beginning of our learning the ways of true peace. Amen. As Elizabeth told you earlier, the season of Lent begins next Sunday and the pastors are going to offer a sermon series called Found in Exile. Now, because this is the introductory sermon of the series, half my time is going to be like a Sunday school class. So if you skipped Sunday school, guess what? You didn't. Here you are. And half my time will be presented preaching the text. Now, don't worry altogether. I won't go too long. The Babylonian exile took place when the southern half of Israel, called Judah, fell to the Babylonians. The nation was overrun, the Davidic line of reigning kings ended, the temple destroyed, and much of the populace exiled from the homeland. The shocking surprise of history is that this terrible calamity led to a faith and a vision that not only changed forever how the Jews see the world and their place in it, but also changed forever the vision and religions of the people around them. In a talk I heard Jason Bingham give Friday on leadership, he said that good leaders see adversity as potential advantage. Well, broadly speaking, historically, that is what the Jews made of the exile. Think about being a people in exile. Think about two millennia in which there is no sovereign nation on earth in which the Jews are a majority population. Somehow, over time, the Jews found a way to bloom where they were planted. Not always, not everywhere, but over and over again in history, they bloomed. And one of the ways they bloomed is that they developed a strong exile identity and theology. Well, not all the Jews. Then, as today, there were nationalists who believed that being a strong nation with a strong military is the end all and be all of being a strong people. But there did develop a vision and a faith that was, well, landless and nationless. Out of the exile, faith and identity and Practice came the formation of what we realize today or what we consider today to be the Hebrew scriptures. It was a faith that told the honest story about boundaries and about abuses of power. The visions of justice and peace of the faith were so compelling that they were absorbed in the expectations of the people around them. And eventually even their rulers had to at least pay lip service to the idea that the weak and poor have rights. The contributions of the Jews were not always appreciated by the people around them. I mean, you know how it is when you share a good idea with someone and then later, lo and behold, it was their idea and they give you no credit at all. Well, magically, that is what took place about the contributions of the Jewish people. And they were then blamed for being separatists who set themselves apart looking out only for themselves. And there is some truth to that. I mean, if you are a minority people who want to maintain your specific identity with a sense of community, you follow your own unique customs, you observe your own unique rituals and festivals, you tell the stories that keep alive the memory of your ancestors that teach your children and their grandchildren who are your people, and you maintain disciplines of prayer and worship. But to say that they existed only for themselves, that is a great historical slander that was repeated about the Jews over and over. While the Jews certainly kept to their own customs and faith, the result was the creation of a service community. Again, Think about being a minority community in whatever land you live. You want to flourish, and that means you have to find ways to be of use and service in the larger community. Living on borrowed lands, whether or not you had title to a piece of the property or not, living on borrowed lands, they had to learn to serve with their mind and imagination. We have heard that we are today in a service economy that has moved away from manufacturing and toward knowledge and education. Well, don't think that that is new. In nations where the advantages of the land, herds and crops were often closed to the Jews, they created a service economy that worked for them and added value to the world, providing the goods of intelligence and education and business and imagination. Sadly, as we know from history, where they flourished, they often inspired jealousy and resentment and hatred. When they became too prosperous, they often were persecuted and, when not killed, often forced to leave their adopted homes, forced over and over again into new exiles. This was, of course, unjust, and cruel. And that is how their magnificent theological vision bloomed. Nationalists tend to care about justice only for their own. The Jews of the exile came to see that justice could not be just for them. It had to be for everyone. Dependent as they were on the protection of the law in lands where they were not the majority that made the laws and needing the goodwill of people who did not share their faith, and seeing that in the lands that they lived, there were people around them who were also vulnerable and exposed, and they realized that there were needs of even the people who oppressed them. The Jews developed a vision of a realm of God where justice had to be for all people, not just for the Jews. So this people who remained a part and developed a strong sense of personal ethics envisioned a world where they could live at peace with others and thus developed a strong sense of social justice. Their moral vision was a moral virus that spread to the peoples around them. And the day came when powerful rulers, even in pursuing ruthless and selfish ends, had to at least pay lip service to the notion that they were serving the greater good. Sort of like invading another nation and saying it's to establish a peacekeeping force. The final thing I will say in this long introduction to the whole sermon series is that if we're going to find direction by following Jesus, then understand that his life and ministry is the life and ministry of exile. That was the perspective of the New Testament writers. The New Testament presented Jesus as a prophet without a home. And to follow his story is to go on a journey from place to place, land to land, sometimes being banned from towns, even his hometown. And he is bearing witness to a realm of God that is for Jew and Gentile alike. Jesus is a separatist in the sense that he does not want to deviate from the Torah law but fulfill it. Yet, he is also a universalist and that he knows that in keeping the heart's law is to love God and neighbor, including those neighbors who are different from you, like Samaritans, and perceived as enemies, like the Romans. Even the persecution of the cross cannot keep who he is and what he has to offer from being resurrected from the dead. And now we know by his witness that all of us with our sin are exiled from God, but that when we are lost, God can find us there in exile and we can gain a new identity. And thus, in gratitude, we can bear witness to the God who hears the voice of the voiceless, gives power to the faint, healing to the sick, and stands for justice for the persecuted, no matter who they are. That is my introduction to the entire sermon series. This being the Sunday before Lent, let's go back to Israel before the exile, before 587 B.C. Let's go to a day of hope, a day of false hope, a day of peace, a day of a facade of peace. Hear the words of Jeremiah. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have treated the wound of my people carelessly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They acted shamefully. They committed abomination. Yet they are not ashamed. They do not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I will punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. So spoke the prophet Jeremiah when he lived in Judah before the Babylonian invasion. Let's now move from Old Testament to New Testament. Let's move from one prophet to another, from Jeremiah to Jesus. But to get to Jesus, I'm going to have to draw a historical line that moves from one power to another. We begin with Judah, which has had a series of kings, most of whom who fit the description of those who are greedy for unjust gain. Judah is a weakened nation economically and politically and militarily, but though they are not a superpower, they think that they have a superpower, and that is being the chosen people of God. They trust that God will never abandon God's people, and the Davidic line of kings will last forever. But it doesn't. Judah falls to the military power that is Babylon and the king and much of the populace are exiled to foreign lands and Babylon. Now that's an empire that's going to last forever. Only it doesn't. A half century later, Babylon falls to Persia and Persia allows exiled Jews not only to return to their homeland in Israel, but also scatter throughout the Persian empire Now, the Persian Empire is one that is going to last forever. Only it doesn't. Two centuries later, Persia falls to the Greeks, led by Alexander. And Jews in exile are allowed now to scatter throughout the Greek Empire. And the conquering general, Alexander, he's seen as a god, and his empire will last forever. Only it doesn't. The Greek empire fades and when the battle of Actium is lost 177 years later, the final military nail is hammered into the coffin of Alexander's dream of eternal empire and there arises the Roman empire of which there will be no end. The emperor rules over vassal states with puppet governments and one of those vassal states is the land of Israel with a king whose claim to the throne is not being a descendant of David but being the chosen puppet of Rome. Which brings us to the time of our New Testament passage. The passage tells of a moment when Jesus approaches Jerusalem. He knows that there awaits for him powerful people, both in government and in religion, who resent his preaching and his following. Never mind the gifts that he has offered that he has healed the sick and fed the hungry and given hope to the poor. His authority and his following is seen as a threat. His success is seen as a threat. And Jesus knows that he will be stopped. He crests the Mount of Olives and when the city comes into full view, this happens. As he came near and saw the city, he Wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave you with one stone upon another. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. The hard word of the Lord. And now to my brief sermon. I have sympathy for those ordinary citizens of Israel or of Judah who heard the prophet Jeremiah tell them that the peace that they want and the invasion that they want to avoid is simply not theirs to have. I bet that many Ukrainians could sympathize even more. I told those who joined me late Thursday afternoon for conversation and prayer that I heard a news commentator say something that described me. He said that many Americans knew intellectually that the Russian invasion was possible. They knew the news of the buildup of forces on the Ukraine border and the news of intelligence reports that Putin had already decided that the invasion would take place. Yet they just couldn't make themselves believe it. First world countries in Europe haven't invaded each other since the Second World War over seven decades ago. Surely that can't happen today. Now the commentator was speaking for Americans, but what he said was true of people around the world, including many people living in Ukraine. If we watched the news, if we saw the postings on social media, we heard many Ukrainians urge the West not to assume the invasion would happen. Some thought that he might take over the eastern Donbass region where there were many Russian sympathizers, but they did not think that that would affect them where they lived in places like Kyiv. And then on the first day of the invasion, bombs and paratroopers were dropped right outside of Kyiv. And now I don't know about you, but I can't take my eyes off the news and my prayers with all those in threat and praying urgently for peace. Surely our king will reign and our nation will not fall. There will be peace. That is the belief and message of many of the priests and prophets who surround Judah's king. And oh, how the citizens of Judah want to believe it is true. They adopted what we might today call Judean exceptionalism. They bank on God's promise to make of the people of Abraham a great nation of which there will be no end. Jeremiah, though, sees Babylon growing strong and more to the point, Judah growing weak morally weak. Judah's in bad economic times, and yet the powerful and rich do everything they can to watch out for their abundance while neglecting the needs of those who struggle to survive day to day. Jeremiah sees the threat of an outside power, but he also sees inside corruption. Now, over Jeremiah's long career, half a century, by the way, He proves to be a prophet of hope. But he begins by being a destroyer of false hope. A truth teller who pierces through denial. The king has surrounded himself by paid prophets who tell him what he wants to hear, that there is no threat to the status quo. And the people of Judah have been assured of peace when the reality is that violence is knocking on the nation's door and has been maintained within. What Jeremiah pierces is what we today might call confirmation bias, seeking and believing only what confirms what we want to be true. It's natural, it's inevitable that we all have that bias, but it can be the biggest barrier in the way of being able to overcome dysfunction and flourish in life. I have spoken in this sermon of the dangers uh, dangers of this bias in international terms, speaking of Ukraine and Judah. On Friday, Jason Bingham spoke of it in business terms when he spoke of businesses that sometimes think that adversity is only to be outlasted rather than an opportunity to reset in order to thrive. It could be spoken of in terms of communities that think that they can resist changes happening in the world that will overwhelm them if they do not change. I think of the deep south of my childhood where so many thought that the segregation of schools and the enforcing of Jim Crow laws would last forever. They would make sure it was so. And bias can be found in relationships, such as when a relationship is toxic And someone in that relationship thinks it'll get better without what is toxic being faced. Confirmation bias can be so strong that the only way it can be pierced sometimes is by a voice that is outside getting through, as the role therapists often have. Jeremiah is honored as a prophet because he knows that hope begins sometimes only when False hope is surrendered. True peace sometimes begins only when trouble begins. Our Lenten journey into exile will lead to the good news of living in God's realm. But I advise those who suffer a tragedy when that happens that it's not a good strategy at first to try to be happy. The first priority is to be healthy. And when something hard has to be faced, the first healthy step can be facing a truth that one wants to deny. In that light, Jeremiah's first goal is to inspire grief over what will be lost and has to be surrendered. And when that reality sets in, in our lives even, It's not time to jump quickly to getting over it. It is not the time to speak of how lemonade is made or how a smile is the reverse of a frown or how when a door closes, a window can be found to be open. Yes, our whole sermon series will be about the wonders and gifts and blessings that can be found in loss. But at the point of denial, the true prophet's best work is to inspire grief over what is thought to be eternal but is not. This hard moment can be the beginning of the miracle of a healing and the beginning of a journey to real peace. Second Presbyterian Finding Direction by Following Jesus